You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. See if this scenario sounds familiar. You're frustrated. You're discouraged. And here's why. You've got sin in your life. And you're chasing after so many things. And and the more you think about it, you realize the more problems you have. You may even end up saying, you know, God's got to be tired of me. If that's you, I'd say, you know, we all feel like that from time to time. And what I would ask is, well, what are you doing about it? And you might say, well, I started reading the Bible and praying, and and even when I I feel like I'm not getting through to God, I'm pushing through my prayer anyhow, and and I love being in the church. I think that helps. How's that going for you? Well, I, I find that I'm learning a lot. I love Jesus, and I'm talking to him. Why are you discouraged then? It sounds like you're making progress. Yeah, but Jesus says we're to be perfect. He did, you know. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And he might as well have said that to the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 when he said to her, go and sin no more. Imagine that. Go and sin no more. Well, isn't that asking her to be perfect? Let me tell you why he said that. He said that to frustrate you. (laughs) So you would try for a while, and you would come to a place where you realize, I'm not perfect, and I can't be perfect. And then you would realize that he's your perfection. And you receive grace from Jesus Christ, and you rest in that. Now, it doesn't say in Scripture that we should have a lackadaisical attitude toward our sin or or not deal with it or make up lots of excuses. But we need to understand that Jesus alone is perfect. He is our perfection, and we need to celebrate progress in ourselves and in others. And as we get into Esther chapter 4, we're looking at the story of Mordecai and Esther. They're not perfect. But they start in chapter 4. It's like a hinge. The story begins to swing on what happens here. They start making progress. First, we're going to treat Mordecai and Esther and Haman and Xerxes, uh, these four main characters in this story, as case studies. Two of these people don't make any progress. They're not God's people. They don't change. That's the king, Xerxes, and that's his right-hand man, Haman. But two of these characters are God's people. They do make progress. It's... A little slow at first. It takes them a while to get going. But they start moving forward spiritually in chapter 4. That's Mordecai and Esther. Here's how chapter 4 opens. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done. All right, if you're new to this series, let me catch you up in the story. There's a king named Xerxes who rules over the entire 
Persian Empire, about 3 million square miles, several nations, people groups, languages. He is the most powerful, influential, richest man on earth in his day. He sits on a throne and he's treated like a god because he thinks he's a god. He gets upset with his wife because he's asked her to do something that she refuses to do, which is to parade in front of a drunken party. She says no. He divorces her. And then some four years later, he holds this enormous competition. Hundreds of women are in it, and they are given a year spa treatments. And the winner will become Queen of Persia. One of those young women is Esther. She's Jewish, but she's not really walking with God. She's an orphan. Her parents died when she was young, and she was adopted by her older cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai, at this point, is kind of a coward. No one knew for a long time that he's Jewish, that he's one of God's people. On top of that, he works for a pagan king. He's somewhere in the government. What he does do, however, is he decides he's going to die on the hill of not bowing to Xerxes' right-hand man, Haman. Haman is this egomaniacal, power-hungry, loves public recognition kind of guy. And the decree is made from the king that everyone must bow to Haman. And everybody does, except one guy, Mordecai. Mordecai refuses to bow. So you can see these large events that are taking place all across uh, the, the, the capital city and, and everyone's bowing to Haman except one guy. It's kind of obvious, right? We don't know exactly why, but we do know historically these two families, Haman's family and Mordecai's family. Hundreds of years prior in the Old Testament is the story of their fighting and feuding. In fact, Haman's ancestors are the first people group to attack the family line of Abraham, of which Mordecai is a part. And what happens then? Mordecai keeps doing this. He keeps not bowing. He is triggering the rage of Haman. Not bowing, not bowing. Nope, not going to bow. Finally, Haman has had enough. And he says... I'm going to have Mordecai killed and everyone who's of the Jewish race along with him, all of God's people. Historians say at this point, there may be as many as 15 million Jews living throughout Persia. So the punishment doesn't fit the crime. One guy doesn't bow and 15 million are going to die. Here's the fuller first verse. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. This is public mourning. This is public protest. The decree has been sent out. The death sentence has been issued. The date is set. And Mordecai is powerless but he's going to protest and he's going to finally publicly identify as one of God's people. 
He's going from silent to speaking, from passive to active. We're going to see him make progress. Besides this, he hasn't been walking faithfully with God. He's living far away from Jerusalem. No praying, no scripture reading, no tithes and offerings, no sacrifices, nothing that would indicate that he's been walking with the Lord. He's kind of a cowardly, timid man who worships, it seems like, comfort and convenience rather than God. And now he gets active. See, there's, there's hope for all of us who have been passive, who've been cowardly, who've been silent. And for some of us, that's been a really long time. Mordecai, at this point, has already raised Esther. She is married now to the king for some five years. So this is a long time in coming. But there's hope here. He gets active. He starts making spiritual progress, and he does so publicly, and he does so through mourning. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. You can't be sad before the king. Only good news and happy people get to go into the palace. And as Mordecai is not allowed entrance because he's grieving and wailing and lamenting. So in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, you're going to kill all these Jews all of God's people, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Here, Mordecai, his faith gets activated. Here's the big idea about faith. Faith is an internal conviction that leads to external action. Faith is not just what you believe, it's how you behave. Sometimes we can really tell who has faith by what they do. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're at a pool and you see a little kid on the ledge standing up, got his inflatable swimmies on his arms, but he's terrified. Dad's in the pool and dad is saying, come on, son. I got you. Jump. How do you know whether or not that little boy has more faith in his father than in his fear? Not if they do a theological treatise on the word faith in Greek, but if the little boy does what? Jumps. If the child jumps, then they trust their dad more than the fear of the consequences. That is faith demonstrated in action. I don't know whether or not Mordecai has faith at this point. He may be like some of us. He's not an atheist. He would say that he belongs to God, but he's not really walking with God. We don't know where he's at. We do know this, however. Something in him is starting to change. It starts with him mourning and grieving and lamenting. And for some of you, that's where you need to start. Looking at your sin, looking at your situation, there should be grieving and mourning. 
and you get to that point where you say, I need to talk to God. And I need to talk to God's people. Life is hard. I'm not going to lie. I can't fix this. I'm in real trouble. You know what that is? The moment you take all that to God, that's progress. For you, what, where have you been passive and you need to get active? You say, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but I don't. Then get active and start reading it. I know I need to pray, but I don't pray. Then start praying. I know I need to be in community with God's people and join a group. Then do it. What is it for you? You see, I know for a fact that Jesus loves you. And he has sent the Holy Spirit to provide you opportunities in which you can progress spiritually. And once you do that, it will be something the Holy Spirit is bringing then into your life. I'm not talking about perfection. I I don't want to talk about the things that you haven't done, the things that you and I have failed on. Let's acknowledge those, let's mourn those, but let's move on in the grace of God. And that's what happens to Mordecai. He could spend the rest of his life lamenting, I haven't walked with God, my dad didn't, my grandfather didn't, we have been not much good at believing. Kind of hypocrites more. I've been a total coward. I raised one girl that God allowed me to raise. I adopted her and then I hand her off. I couldn't do anything about it to this guy who thinks he's a God. He's just a nasty, perverted man. And now 15 million people are going to die because I am a stubborn man. If he wants to just sit there and feel sorry for the rest of his life, he could do that, right? Right? Lots to be bummed about. But instead, he makes progress. What opportunities has God given you for progress? Avail yourself of them. And God's grace will show up to help you make progress. That's the story of Mordecai. Now, what about Esther? Well, Esther has an opportunity to make progress too. We'll see this next verse. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. So word comes to Esther. They're going to kill your cousin, your adopted father figure, and 15 million Jews. It's a crisis. Here, this crisis brings, though, an opportunity. You know, most of the time, our spiritual progress is during seasons of duress. Do you get that? Spiritual progress usually happens in seasons of duress. There's a crisis. That's why when people go through hard, arduous, difficult times and circumstances, they'll say things like, man, I wish this never happened. I I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. But I never grew so much in life. I never got closer to God. I would never have learned the lessons I learned had I not gone through 
cancer, addiction, divorce, betrayal, suffering, poverty, uh, you name it. Oftentimes, our opportunity for spiritual growth is during the hardest, most difficult seasons. Esther, the queen, learns there's a crisis. And so she sent clothes for him, for Mordecai, to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept it. Now, this may sound weird to us. 15 million people are going to die. Do you want a new suit? What this really is, is she's not been in touch with Mordecai much. She's been in the palace. He's been out in the city. He's weeping, wailing, lamenting, protesting. So she says to him, I want to meet with you, but you can't come into the palace in your mourning attire. You need to get changed to gain access. I want to give you some clothes. For whatever reason, he says no. Then more of the story. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave Hathak a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Mordecai is active with his faith. He is making progress. The intermediary is sent. That's Hathak. This servant who has access to Esther. And the message is, he comes back and reports it. Haman is going to kill all of us. Haman is going to pay off the king. And it's going to start soon. There's a date that's already been set. They're here Look at this. Here's the copy of the decree. Say something. Do something. And here's the key. At this point in the book, Esther has been passive, not active. She's been silent. Others have made decisions for her. How easy it is to look at our circumstances, the circumstances of our life, and say, you know what? It's out of my control. Culture is like this big stream, uh, and I'm just like a little leaf that's just being carried by the current. <laughs> what can I do? Esther appears like that up to this point in the story. Everything is happening around her. Decisions are being made on her behalf. People are speaking for her. She's not active She's not making progress spiritually. There's no indication at this point that she has prayed, read the scriptures, worshiped with God's people, none of that. Again, it's like many of us. She knows things that she has not done. And her faith has been a private matter, not a public one. 
No one knows that Esther is to be counted among God's people. It's been secret. She hasn't wanted to tell anybody. Maybe it would be uncomfortable for her, but also to the point, her cousin Mordecai told her not to say anything. It's more like, hey, let's just try to fit in and just go with the flow. But Mordecai gets going, and here he is encouraging Esther to get going and make spiritual progress. So the question for us to consider now is, what opportunity has God given us today to make some progress? There's a sense of urgency in this scripture story. There should be the same sense of urgency in our lives. Maybe you'd say, well, it's on my to-do list. No. A relationship with God should be at the center of everything, not on the top of some list. It's not to be completed like a, like a check mark kind of thing. Hey, done that. A relationship with God is to be constant because it affects everything else. So what is it for you? I know the Holy Spirit is speaking into your life. Is it time to start reading scripture? Is it time to start confessing sin? Is it time to start praying? Is it time to pursue godly friendships? Is it time to serve and use your gifts? Is it time to reorder your budget and your schedule so that your relationship with God is not private and internal, but public and external? What is it for you? She then instructed that intermediary, Hathak, to go back to Mordecai and let me just say this. Esther is finally commanding someone. We've not seen this before. She's taking charge. She's acting like a leader. She is taking initiative. Here's Esther to this point. Well, I kind of haven't gone to church much. My parents never, well, they kind of went, well, no, they kind of didn't go to church either. Um, I really wasn't walking with God. But now I'm feeling a stirring in my heart. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman, this is, this is what she's reporting back to Mordecai. If any man or woman approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law. They are to be put to death unless the king extends a gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. She's looking at her situation and she says, okay, the only way to get the king to reverse Haman's decree to kill all of God's people, I've got to go to the king. I've got to go to my husband. But here's the problem. He sits on a throne. And he tends to drink when he's sitting on the throne. A lot. That's what we've learned so far. And if you just go up to the king, they will have you killed. There are no repeat offenders here. It's not like, man, I went up to him three times. No, nope. this is a one-shot deal. The king cannot just be interrupted, so they made this rule. You're only allowed to see the king if he invites you. 
So let's say you want to go see the king. You have gained entrance into the, to the palace. You would stand off at a distance. And if the king lowered his scepter, that was your invitation. You would come and you would place your hand on the end of that scepter. That was him welcoming you. If, on the other hand, you've entered, he sees you, but he doesn't lower the scepter, your head gets cut off. Not too many options. I was thinking about employing this very thing. (laughs) Next time you want to see me, we'll see where the swing of the... Okay. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all Jews will escape? For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? This is a really famous line from Esther. But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. And right before we get to that reply, so get this, she's active. She's making progress. She's, she's got a hard decision to make. Not like, not unlike all of us. Am I going to risk living out my life of faith no matter what consequences come my way? And let me say this, I'm not some naive Rosie, everything's going to turn out great kind of pastor. Like, I'm not going to tell you, do what God says, and it'll, it'll be great. There are guys in the Bible who got beheaded. John the Baptist comes to mind. And even if you read the rest of the story, I don't want to get too far ahead, but it doesn't end like this. And they lived happily ever after. Xerxes got saved, went to Bible college, started a mega church. Esther ran the women's ministry. They had 27 kids who all became missionaries to China. It doesn't go that way. And so sometimes through our sin, through the sin of others and the difficulty of our circumstances, we get ourselves in a situation where it's like, I'm in a bad place. And I, if I make a decision to obey God, it could get worse. And yeah, sometimes it does. That's where Esther is. That's where we live. That's faith in action. It's doing. It's risk taking. So now here's the message that she sends out to Mordecai. Go. Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, who are in the confines of the the palace area, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. This is the most godly thing that occurs in the book of Esther. We started this whole series a few weeks back saying there is no mention of God whatsoever in the book of Esther. There is no prayer recorded. 
in the book of Esther. There is no sense of how am I feeling spiritually recorded in the book of Esther. But she's asking them to fast. She's saying, I need God's people to help me. I don't know what's going to happen. This may not end well. The reason why I'm queen is because Vashti disobeyed a direct order from the king. And now I'm about to disobey a rule. But in the scripture, so often when God's people fast, it is accompanied by prayer. And it's usually preparing the heart for something difficult. Some type of ministry assignment, some kind of mission to go on that that person is going to need God's help to make it happen. And she says this, when this is done, when that fasting, when those three days of fasting, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's faith. I don't know when Esther comes to that faith, but by this point in the story, she has faith, and that faith is action. And when people meet the God of the Bible, they change. So what we're seeing in chapter 4 is that Esther changes. Mordecai changes. They're not perfect, but they're making progress. That's the description of a believer. You see, you can't meet the God of the Bible and not change. As they did, you might have a season of rebellion and and backsliding, but ultimately, God's people make progress. The only characters who don't make progress are Haman and Xerxes. They're the same at the end of the story as they are at the beginning. That's how it is with people who don't know God. They don't change. People who know God, they change. There's progress. And here's the final line in Esther 4. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now Esther is making decisions. She's acting with wisdom. Previously, she's not shared her faith. And now she's beginning to own her faith. She comes to own a public relationship with God and she's taking a lead. And here's what God is doing. At the same time, he is working in two places. He's working with his disobedient people in Persia who are supposed to be in Jerusalem. And he's working with his slightly more obedient people in Israel. And there are three contemporaries being used of God at the same time. Ezra and Nehemiah, who are in Israel, and Esther in, Israel, in, in Persia. Ezra and Nehemiah in Israel. Ezra is kind of like the, the Bible teacher. He's the, the church leader. He's the pastor. Nehemiah is a business guy. He runs the numbers. He puts projects together. These two working together, Ezra and Nehemiah, rally the people of Jerusalem to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. 
Who else is God using? Esther and Mordecai. So here's who God uses. Young and old, male, female, theologically trained, theologically untrained, those with business backgrounds, those who are orphans, those in positions of power, those in powerless positions, those who have been walking with God faithfully for a long time, those who have been walking with God faithfully for a couple of days. You see, wherever you're at, you're part of God's plan. You're part of God's mission. How encouraging is that? And we've been saying each week since the beginning of this story that the story of Esther, it yearns, it longs for the coming of the Messiah. At the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus, we are told, went throughout the whole Old Testament with two of his disciples on the way to Emmaus, it was after the resurrection, and explaining to them that the entirety of the Old Testament is about him. It's about Jesus. He is the fulfillment of it all. So this story of Esther finds its place in the really big story. Here, 15 million people are going to be saved, but that's not ultimate salvation. Ultimate salvation is going to come from Jesus who will save everyone who calls on his name. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.